Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca here on WMCK.FM Internet Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. Heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. All right, so here we are, April 5th, 2020. This is our April 5th. 2020 edition of the Consumer Review Report. And if you have any uh, ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKee Sport. Also, if you have any ideas, um, uh, any comments or anything that you've heard on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and Twitter at CRR in the Keysport. All right. Well, this week on the show, uh, I'll be talking about telemedicine. And you know, we'll be talk. I'll be talking about how this impacts patients and doctors. Now, is this a positive direction in healthcare or not? Uh, also, I'll talk about how telemedicine will help lessen the spread of the coronavirus and uh, anything else for that matter. You know, um, if you have the flu, if you have a cold. Uh, they can diagnose you, apparently. Um, nothing serious, of course. They're not going to be able to diagnose if you are definitely having a heart attack or anything, but they can probably say by the symptoms that you're displaying to get to the emergency room uh, as soon as you can. But for, you know, this and that, uh, you know, or to get your medicines prescribed, uh, you can just go through the telephone or online and, and they will be able to to uh, do about to, to do something about that, right? With not not having to go to a waiting room to wait or to your doctor or anything like that. Uh, later, if I have time, I'll talk about traveling during the COVID nineteen crisis if traveling is even possible. So I'll play audio from a video that the Wall Street Journal posted on YouTube titled coronavirus makes travel cheaper but should you book Uh, yeah it might be very cheap to travel but do you really want to and then there are some people that are still traveling um i know one friend who has a friend who is traveling to turkey for his job Uh, so i guess traveling is still going on despite you know any everything that's going on so That's not out of the realm of possibility, I guess. So if you wanted to take a vacation and rates are, you know, reasonable, then I don't know. I guess you might want to do that, right? So uh, also, if again, if I have time, I'll talk about what you might need if you're quarantined at home and safety advice if you must visit the grocery store. Now, I'm going to save the recent recalls for the end of the show, um, again, if we have time. Um, but if I don't, uh, the recent recalls can be found on my Facebook page at Consumer Review Report. 
or you can go directly to www.recalls.gov recent. So let's uh, go ahead and get on with the show and talk telemedicine. Now, uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's called Telemedicine, Once a Hard Sell Can't Keep Up with Demand by Parmi Olson. All right, so let's go ahead and dissect this article. The coronavirus pandemic is pushing the once niche telemedicine industry into the mainstream, testing its ability to keep up with soaring demand and forcing innovation on the fly. Before the outbreak, telemedicine struggled to take hold, in part because of government regulation and a lack of interest from patients and big companies. Now, companies like Teladoc Health Inc. and Doctor On Demand Inc. are racing to add doctors and bandwidth, while big tech firms like Microsoft Corporation add services. Whether the flurry is a short-term response to the crisis or a more lasting shift in healthcare is still unknown. The largest standalone telemedicine service in the U.S. publicly traded Teladoc has been slammed with calls. The uh, purchase, New York company, uh, reported a 50% increase in service through March 20th compared with the week prior. It provides video consultations with a network of thousands of doctors through its app, charging subscription fees to insurers and large employers. It also offers individual consultations. Now, Jennifer Fritz Christ, a 34-year-old in Dallas, said she waited 22 hours to hold a video call with a teledoc provider last month before her appointment ultimately was canceled. She had recently been in the emergency room with pneumonia and wanted to renew a prescription. When Ms. Fritz Christ tried another large telemedicine firm, Doctor On Demand, based in San Francisco, she couldn't register because the site's online waiting room was full. Teladoc said it has seen a dramatic increase in consultation requests, leading to longer response times. It has added thousands of doctors to its network, targeting them with online ads and directly through social media. The company said it has recruited doctors who work in non-essential areas, such as allergy and endocrinology departments, that are being temporarily shut down in some hospitals. Teladoc is also paying more to lure doctors, though it wouldn't disclose rates. Many of its consultation works uh, for the platform in addition to their day jobs, such as for an hour in the evening after finishing a shift. Doctor On Demand said a surge in inquiries has led to increased wait times. It said it was adding more doctors to its platform as well as more computing infrastructure. It is increasing incentives to bring more doctors on board, the company said, without elaborating. It also built a simple COVID-19 symptom checker, which would be patients filled out before getting a video appointment to triage users. Uh, Dublin, Ohio-based Updocs LLC, which rolled out a video calling service for doctors a year ago, said it has brought on 10,000 new customers in the past two weeks. It is hiring sales and support staff. Companies are rolling out new products, too. Currently, telemedicine is a patchwork of efforts by big and small firms around the world. 
A long-standing challenge for the industry has been sometimes conflicting government rules about the provision of health care and how to protect patient privacy. Insurance and reimbursements for services vary. Patients have been slow to embrace, too. So, uh, let's see what we got here. All right. So that uh, that tells you a little bit about what's going on with the telemedicine uh, industry as of now. I know we just renewed our insurance at at work, and uh, that is one of the things they added. And uh, I was all I was pretty pleased about it because I don't have a primary care doctor, and I don't go to the doctors. Uh, very often, and but you know, on occasion, you may have to just, you know, get some advice or get a prescription filled, uh, things like that, right? So, um, so I was pretty pleased about that because who wants a primary care doctor and then you have to make an appointment and then go, and you know, just for something that might be simple. So, here is a video clip or. In our case, it's audio, but it was posted on YouTube by eClinical Works. And it's uh, called Telehealth, How Televisits Are Improving Health Care. So let's take a listen. Welcome to another edition of ECW Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Saul. Today we're going to be talking about telehealth services, and with me today is Rocky Langer from our Hilo area. Rocky, Hello, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, so telehealth services. Tell us a little bit about telehealth services. Telehealth services is uh, basically a healthcare provider who is able to offer additional services mainly to uh, cater to the patient's needs over audio and or video, just to expand their access and make sure they're available for their patients. What kind of providers would find it most useful for them? Uh, in fact, uh, providers of really all specialties can actually use televisit services, telehealth services. The, um, what we have seen in our experience is that providers who are offering any form of uh, behavioral health services mm -hmm. or post-op and pre-op sort of procedural services, they're all able to offer telehealth services. Typically, anyone who does not need a physical exam, right off the bat, you can offer televisit services. So I guess the, the flip side of that would be, how is this helpful for patients? Very good question. Um, in fact, one of the first things that comes to my mind is this practice in Florida, a pediatrician who wants to, who has offered this for their ADHD patients, the kids. Oh. So anytime there is uh, either distance or accessibility that comes into question, televisit services is a great expansion because you're able to offer the similar care and what you would offer in office over televisits. So it actually makes it easier for the patients mm -hmm. and for the staff. They're able to go ahead and take care of the patients there. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard of... Um 
a provider's office down in south, uh, I guess it would be southeast Texas, that helps out with um, medical care for people that are in the central part of Texas who are working on the uh, oil rigs. Exactly. And while they, they have a nurse that's on staff there, it's tough for them to be able to get a doctor to diagnose things. So the telehealth services was able to provide those uh, those oil rig workers with a much higher level of health care. That, that's exactly right. In fact, on the similar lines, there is another group, again, in Florida. They offer televisit services for their patients who are in nursing homes. So again, the concept was the patients were finding it hard to get to the doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. So the doctor's office set it up in a way that the patients can connect with their health care providers in the office over televisit services right from the uh, right from the nursing home so it makes it oh, a lot well, yeah. more convenient sure um, but it also keeps them connected with the doctor which is a very very big advantage i'm a technophile i love technology but to be honest with you it's a little daunting to me to say all right i'm going to hook electronically up with my doctor i'm going to be able to see them they'll see me we can talk we can chat etc how easy is it to use so it is actually very, very straightforward from the patient side and the doctor's side. So let's talk about the patient side because you as a patient would want to connect with your doctor. A, it is, you know, part of how you know your doctor offers it. So it makes it a lot more, you know, it's your own doctor who you've been seeing. Um, so it can, it, you can, as a patient, connect via the Hilo app or through the portal, which you have access to. And, you know, technology-wise, it's very, very simple, where with, really with the app, you can just uh, open the app and actually automatically connect. So, Lucy, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that through the Hilo app, which I have on my smartphone, yep. I can actually initiate or, or uh, have a televisit with my provider through my smartphone. That's exactly that, right. That's the case. That wow. is exactly the case. So your smartphone, which can be either an Apple phone or the Android phone, it really doesn't matter, um, it has the Hilo app. And one of the options there is to initiate the televisit right from within the phone. Um, so with, you know, you're able to start a video call and connect with your doctor. It'd be literally anywhere. It, yes, exactly. Literally anywhere to yes, do that. Yes, we've heard of different scenarios where patients are um, either in the park um, huh. or the, the, the parents are actually picking up their kids from their schools and it works just as seamlessly. That's fantastic. That, that really is amazing. Um, now, beyond the normal uh, interaction between the provider and the patient, is there any other um, information that the televisit services can gather for the provider? That's a very good question because I think um, it, it cannot be a one-size-fits-all. What I mean is uh, a behavioral health counseling, uh, the counselor is looking for information specific to behavioral health, mm -hmm. whereas a, a provider who is offering televisit services for, let's say, a post-op is looking for different information. How's the pain scale? What is your pain level like? Are you able to take care of the pain with just the meds out of the, you know, the ones that we have given, so on and so forth. So um, we could look at, you know, different questionnaires in a way to actually send it to the patient. So each specialty, each provider can configure what kind of input they need from the patient and that automatically pops up. Whether you're using the portal or the app, that's the same set of questions oh, that you would be able to complete. So like in the case of the portal, these questionnaires are based on visit type. That's exactly right. That's oh, the same so the thing same that's thing? been expanded so that a televisit, now you can say that this provider who is a cardiologist is looking for a different uh, set of 
you know, questions from the patients mm -hmm. to be answered. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And that information can then be incorporated into the note. That's it. Yeah, 100%. So the, the part of how the patient has responded, the rest of it is follows the same protocols of being able to make it a part of the patient data input into the progress note, and then the provider can go ahead and complete the note from wow, there. Wow, that's a time saver right it there. It is, 100%, yes. Now, one of the other things that has um, kind of intrigued me about the telehealth is its use with either, say, um, dermatology or wound care. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? So I think uh, the, the most common ways that you look at televisit, or at least initially when you're looking at televisit and saying, this will work great to show the doctor a something on my um, you know, hand that, that's come up and things like that. So um, there are two aspects there. One is the provider being able to see it mm -hmm. with high def and able to actually see what's happening. Sure. Um, with the patient context as well, so you know how it is uh, actually impacting the patient. Um, right, and that's different than the patient, say, taking a picture and, then and emailing it, it or that's something. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. So you're able to have a conversation, pull in the history of what happened and how mm -hmm. and so on. So it's a conversation. Um, and when they're actually showing it, the provider can capture the image and make it a part of the note as well. So their initial wow. consultation can be documented in context of that specific image or the wound, wound care, how is that actually getting better, whether it is um, that, the, that it's as designed and the patient's doing well, don't need to come to the office, or if it's something that the patient now needs to come and it didn't right. really you know, heal as, as initially thought, why don't you come into the office? So it can actually take different routes based on what the televisit outcome is. So for follow-up visits, for example, example, um, the provider would be able to access that previous picture, get that in the note, take another picture and compare the two? A hundred percent. The televisits for the provider is included in the, in the uh, EMR context. So it is mm -hmm. important that the provider is able to see and access all the previous notes for the patient, also able to see what was done as part of the treatment protocol. Also look at the medications prescribed, what is the patient on, and be able to actually compare the two images also right from within the progress note. So they're able to look at both the images or also change the uh, treatment based on what was previously prescribed. Huh. That's, that's amazing, really is. Um, let me ask you this. Now, we've been talking about how patients and providers can interact. Um, what about clinics and providers interacting? Um, I've, I've heard of something that we have now called a virtual rate excuse me, virtual waiting room. Yes, yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the major aspects of the uh, healthcare area has been accessibility. I call that accessibility because there are patients in different uh, geographical areas where there may be not as many specialists, not as many providers easily accessible. They may have one clinic for 100 miles and so on and so forth. So one of the areas that we've heard a lot of interest in and what we have to developed is the concept of a virtual waiting room where a patient can come into a healthcare facility uh, but the provider may not actually be there physically at that facility. Mm -hmm. The nurse or the clinical staff can actually work with the patient, uh, complete the initial assessment, take their meds, histories, and actually have them in a virtual waiting room where there can be a really big TV screen, mm -hmm. which can then connect them to a specialist or a provider, any of the providers, in a different facility. 
typically driving from that facility would probably take um, an hour or so, sure, yeah. right? So you can actually expand that the provider there was available and you can actually just connect with the patient right from, you know, within the other facility. So it makes accessibility much, much more convenient for yeah, it. And, and, you know, it, it, as I think about it, um, it really helps out with no-shows. Yes. Because you're not driving that distance exactly. and then having a patient not show up that's for exactly you. Right. So that's that's a, another real added bonus yeah. to it. Yeah, so. uh, some of the interesting areas we've seen uh, doctors who want to, or clinics who want to use this is uh, where they have, let's say, an OB initial visit mm -hmm. or uh, some form of an initial visit where the patient comes in, there is either just blood draw that's done, and then there is a conversation with the provider, and then there is a follow-up visit where mm -hmm. they're actually seeing, seeing the patient. The, right. So they can actually have this form of, uh, you know, this this uh, form of televisit services uh, to help complement what they're doing in terms of, you know, labs and a physician's consult, so on and so forth. And Medicare also is changing mm -hmm. a few things. They've proposed some new regulations around the televisit services for providers to be able to check in uh, with their patients. Mm -hmm. and, and reimbursement around that, and, and the technology is going to play a big role in making sure that they keep the patients healthy. Well, finally, I guess the, uh, the bottom line is the bottom line, and how much does this cost? So the televisit services is actually just usage-based, which means that if they are able to offer this and the patient's using it, uh, it is $2 per visit. That is as simple as that. There is no other upfront cost for that. It makes it easier for the providers to start onboarding as well. That's that's just great. What a, what a fantastic service. It really Thank is. You. It is. Changing the face of, of how providers deal with patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us, Rakia. Thank you it was so a much. very, very in interesting uh, discussion. Thank you for um, having me. Thank you for being with us today. And uh, if you'd like to see more ECW podcasts, you can join us at. Okay, so uh, that tells you a little bit how the telehealth uh, industry is going to work for patients and work for doctors. Now I have another video clip, uh, some audio from YouTube, and it is called Why I Left the Hospital System and Started Working in Telemedicine. Now this was posted by MIT Technology Review, and just to let you know, um, this was posted two years ago. So they talk about a lot about um, texting and email. That, you know, um, relating to a patient through texting and email, of course, nowadays it's going to be face to face on the phone. And like they described in this um, podcast that you just heard, uh, if you have to show them a wound on your arm, uh, you could do that over the smartphone. But in this case, all they had to relate to a patient really two years ago was texting and email but let's take a listen as to why this person um, her name's Jessica Knox she's the medical director of Newark um, and uh, she is explaining why she left the hospital system and started working in telemedicine so let's take a listen Like we love to say disruptive here in Silicon Valley, but that's really what our healthcare system needs. My clinical years in medical school and my internship in family medicine really felt like I was sort of embroiled in this system of sick care and just sort of taking care of patients to make sure they didn't sort of fall off the cliff of not so well to deathly ill. We want to reach people who are not in the clinic. We want to get to people before 
they come to us with problems. And so I was looking for an opportunity where we could impact at a very different level than we do in the more conventional medical system. So my sister is three years older than me, but ended up entering medical school at the same time as I did. And we ended up actually going to the same medical school, which was really fun. And it was nice to sort of have like a partner in crime during med school. Um, but she, very much like myself, ended up feeling very jaded by our medical system and was also really looking for a different way to impact the healthcare system when she left residency. My mom was an anesthesiologist for 30 years. My dad's an emergency room physician and he's been doing that for 35 years. But my mom, um, you know, she's like a Cal Berkeley grad and she's always been like sort of very revolutionary. And after 30 years in anesthesia it was sort of like, how did I end up with my head down in anesthesia for so long? And and over the course of their, you know, from the start of their career to, to where they are now, the medical system has changed a lot. And it's changed from being a very doctor driven system to one that's very business driven. When we were going into medicine, my mom was just like, just make sure that you're able to you know, dictate the career you want and that you have control over what you're doing. And so with that sort of little piece of advice um, and just sort of my mom's kind of like a revolutionary mindset that we inherited a little bit, we were very ripe to leave the traditional system. I was contacted by the co-founders at Nurex who had this really fascinating idea. We try to make access to birth control, pill, patch or ring, um, emergency contraception, or Truvada for PrEP, which is a daily medication for HIV prevention, easier. Um, those are preventive medications that are very safe that we feel patients should be able to access really easily. Our current system doesn't allow people to do that, so Nurex was an answer to that, a scalable telemedicine model that allows patients to get basic care uh, that they need much more on their own terms. So all day I'm writing to patients and responding to messages and I feel that I, I actually have deeper conversations than I would if I was sitting face to face with a patient. And you know, we've had patients tell us like, I feel so much more comfortable talking to you about some of these sensitive things because also taking away that sort of face to face conversation allows people to feel a lot more comfortable and less judged when they're asking sensitive questions about their bodies. When I was coming through medical school and residency, we weren't trained in telemedicine or how to handle patients via text or via messaging. You know, I think a lot of doctors, at first, they're kind of like, whoa, what are you doing? And then when they actually like start talking to you about it and thinking about it, they, they come to agree that it makes sense. When you have services like this that take some of these really basic, simple care off of the traditional clinic's plate, the traditional clinics have more time to deal with patients who actually need to be in there. Telemedicine isn't ever going to actually fully replace traditional medicine, I don't think. But nonetheless, more demand on the system and you know, our, our doctor staffing in general as a country continues to be outpaced, we're going to need to find innovative ways to make this, this sort of really struggling supply meet this growing demand. Right, so I do have an opinion piece by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, actually, it was posted in the Wall Street Journal, not written by. Uh, it, it was an opinion piece written by Peter L. Steinberg. And it's entitled, Virtual Doctors Are Here to Stay. Relaxed Rules on Telemedicine Should Be the New Norm. Why Not Drive Through Flu Swabs? 
pretty much what's going on with the uh, COVID-19 where they set up pop-up tents to testing. Now he would like uh, just regular old flu swabs, right? So how much, uh, so he goes on to write, so how much about the COVID-19 pandemic is unknown? How many ventilators will America need? What drugs may help fight this horrific illness? But one thing appears certain, the coronavirus is changing the way medicine is practiced. Crises often lead to changes, and the past few weeks appear to have revolutionized the medical profession in important ways. Consider the drive-through COVID-19 testing centers uh, stood up within days. These centers are moving through dozens and even hundreds of patients a day in some places. There is talk of deploying technology such as license plate screening or facial recognition software, which would help minimize interaction with healthcare workers. Results often take days, but could in the future be sent via text message within hours as testing speed and capacity increase. Imagine pulling up to the medical equivalent of a fast food window next winter when your child needs a throat culture during cold and flu season. This would be much more convenient than schlepping to the pediatrician's office, waiting to be seen, and passing around germs in the process. Not every medical test is amenable to this method, but there is an opportunity to transform elements of routine care. Hospitals and offices have cut back on elective surgeries, office procedures, and visits in the past few weeks. Most doctors did what we did in my urology practice, scroll through our charts and computers to figure out who needs to be seen and who can wait. Then we worked with our office staff to track down patients. This is not a particularly efficient process. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other big data tools can help. At the hospital where I work, we developed software to predict no-shows. That helped us see more patients and reduce missed appointments. Imagine software that would automatically triage the patients who need care most urgently. This could save hours of human effort. The past few weeks have shown the tremendous potential of telemedicine in patient care. Many of the doctors in our practice who typically only see patients in person have conducted visits over the phone or through video calls. Many practices already offer these services, but others are catching up. Telemedicine won't replace exams and procedures, and not all of the medicine can be conducted over an app much like you wouldn't want every interaction with your friends and family to happen over FaceTime, but virtual visits may work for discussing lab or imaging results and handling minor complaints that don't require an exam. I specialize in treating kidney stones, and I often joke that all I need to treat patients is their imaging tests. The main barrier to telemedicine has been how doctors are paid and complying with cumbersome reimbursement requirements. Insurers and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have temporarily relaxed restrictions due to the coronavirus pandemic, but there's no reason to return to the way things were once this pandemic passes. Necessity is the mother of invention, the adage goes, and hopefully these changes to medical practice are here to stay. And I do agree with them. I mean, if there's 
something that you need to talk to your doctor over a test, why do you need to make an appointment, go all the way to the office, sit in a waiting room to discuss whether your test came out positive or negative and what you need to do to go forward, what kind of medicine, why can't you do that over the phone? He could prescribe you your medicine, whatever you need, according to what the test said. And there is no taking off work to go to the doctor's office. So I agree. I think there is some merit to this telemedicine as it is with all technology, right? Now, there was some letters to the editor regarding that opinion piece. Uh, Telemedicine, a good but incomplete answer from one person Uh, He writes, regarding Dr. Peter L. Steinberg's virtual doctors are here to stay. As a physician practicing in the heart of the Brooklyn COVID-19 infestation, I too was left with no option but to embrace telemedicine. Using it to advise about real diseases such as COVID-19 gets a bit dicey. Should patients go to the ER now? Do they have pneumonia? I can't listen to their lungs and radiology facilities won't take them. Telehealth does have a role in modern medicine, albeit a limited one. Buyer beware of these rosy Jetson-like predictions. If you want a McVisit Happy Meal, go to a drive through dock in a box. If you want filet mignon, see your doctor in his or her office. This was written by Jonathan S. Lebowitz, MD, Brooklyn, New York. Now here's another letter. While brick and mortar doctors like myself believe medicine is a contact sport, there are circumstances where a video conference or phone call will suffice. It takes experience and training to know who needs more than a remote visit. And the more doctors who try it, the more we will learn. I call my colleagues not to become virtual doctors, but remain actual doctors using virtual technology. That was Paula Muto, MD, in Andover, Massachusetts. Here's another letter. Uh, One problem with this new form of medical help via phone consultation lies in the refusal of medical insurance systems to sanction recompense for this kind of virtual medical practice. Some doctors, no longer seeing many patients face-to-face, receive a flood of phone calls and provide virtual medical assistance while at the same time finding themselves becoming insolvent. A system needs to be devised and sanctioned whereby physicians, like attorneys, may charge fees and receive payments for providing such virtual medicine. And that was uh, M. Professor Robert Eric Frankenberg. So there are some two pros and there are some Cons, of course, in any kind of discussion about any kind of technology. So I have another audio clip uh, that was from a video posted by CNBC. It's entitled, Coronavirus Creates New Opportunities for Patients to Try Telemedicine. So let's see if I can call that up. Let's take a listen. The CDC and other officials are warning people who feel symptoms of the coronavirus not to rush to the ER or urgent care, but instead to call the doctor first. Now, those warnings could be a big opportunity for telehealth companies. Contessa Brewer joins us now with more and to explain telehealth means what exactly? It means that you can contact your doctor through an app 
on your phone, FaceTime. It's all of those interfaces that would keep you out of the actual office with your doctor. And Mercer points out, Dom, that the industry has grown from $6.3 billion in 2016 to a predicted $34 billion by the end of this year. That prediction was before coronavirus. Plush Care is betting that the industry could hit $100 billion in a decade. Coast-to-coast, -coast, companies that offer online, telephone, or text health services are gearing up for a barrage of calls. Hi, how are you? Nice to see you. Plush Care is a subscription service connecting patients to doctors at 50 top medical schools. The company says virtual visits are up 30% since December. It's ramping up for more. People are fearful. They are worried. Should they stock up on medicines? Should they be rushing out to buy masks, and we're trying to answer those questions as best we can. According to Mercer's annual survey, telehealth was available to nearly 90% of employees of large companies last year, though fewer than 10% were using it. Coronavirus could change that. I've been coughing all day. It's more than an initial consult with a physician. Realware offers a wearable computer to connect healthcare providers. But one distributor has sold out because of the uptick in demand amid coronavirus. And researchers can collaborate on 3D models using Athos Beam telepresence. You can imagine how a consortium could leverage our telepresence to examine the coronavirus. The company's rushing past its pilot stage to commercial deployment for COVID-19. Still, patients have been slow to try it out. You just don't need to see a doctor very often. The chance to use it is not very frequent, and so it doesn't spread as rapidly as some of the other technologies that are out there. Healthcare takes time. People need to build trust. So the key opportunity in telemedicine right now is bringing services to people rather than people to services, trying to prevent the spread of this dangerous infection. I mean, it totally makes sense, right? If you're trying to, to, to prevent the spread of people around, you don't want them traveling to see their doctors. So, so let's say that this is one of the big catalysts behind an industry. Just how big could it become? I, I know that I've never used a teledoctor before. When will I start to do it and will I count towards that massive growth ahead? In China, the leading telemedicine company, which is called Ping a Good Doctor, said that it has seen its visits rise nine times since coronavirus outbreak started and its signups 10 times higher, 900% growth in its signups. Uh, its stock is up about 50% in that time frame. Let's look at a, an American company, Teladoc Health, which has seen its, um, its stock go up, same thing, about 45, 48% over the last three months year to date. You can see it's down a little bit right now, but this is a stock that's up 115% over the last six months. It was already on an upward trajectory, and if coronavirus can get people to try out telemedicine once and they like it, it's much more convenient than getting in your car, scheduling an appointment, and well, going into Contessa, the doctor. That Teladoc stock that you were just talking about, that company, because of that gain, is now worth $9 billion. You can only imagine other right. companies getting in. Okay, and so the next audio we have is entitled Telehealth Can Save Some Lives During Health Crisis. And this is also posted by CNBC. So let's take a listen. As we come to grips with the coronavirus pandemic, it's become clearer and clearer that many technologies we've talked about for years are absolutely essential to beating this virus. 
Thanks to social distancing, we've seen incredible demand for video conferencing software from Zoom Video. From Cisco, we saw that today when we spoke to Chuck Robbins and Squawk on the Street. Even more important, with our hospitals soon to be overwhelmed, doctors are embracing telemedicine. We used to push video conferencing around here with your doctor because it helps hold down the cost of healthcare. But now it also helps stop COVID-19. Every case that can be diagnosed remotely is one less chance for the virus to spread at your doctor's office or the hospital. And that's why tonight we're going off the tape with Amwell, the telemedicine company formerly known as American Well, that's seen an astounding 27-fold increase in business in the last four days. It will only get heavier now that the president said that the government's expanding telehealth benefits for Medicare. So let's take a closer look with Roy Schoenberg. He's the president and co-CEO of Amwell. Learn more about how this company is doing and what it's doing to mitigate COVID-19. Mr. Schoenberg, welcome to the money. Thank you for having me, Jim. Okay, so Roy, we first time on the show in private company. Can you tell us uh, what you're doing uh, in general for healthcare, and then specifically drill down to COVID-19? Sure. So we, Amwell produces telehealth technology, which as you described, is the ability for patients and physicians to get together through some of these devices, as well as browsers and other, and other ways. Um, we serve this technology through many of our clients. Um, half of them, about, about half of them, are the health insurance companies, large pairs, everybody's familiar with them, United, Anthem, Cigna, a lot of the Blue Cross Blue Shields have telehealth offering for their membership, historically to, use, to, to not use ERs and now to avoid the coronavirus. Right. And then the other half of the business is actually serving the health system side of the world where the providers, the clinicians are. And there too, it's, you know, the usual suspect, it's, Intermountain, Cleveland Clinic, Neuropresbyterian, each and every one of them has a different name for the product that carries their brand that people oh, really trust. Okay. But if you kind of follow the packets, it ends up running from Amwell infrastructure. So how does uh, Amwell make money? And, and are you, I mean, for Corona-19, are you able to even handle the business? The president was talking about how overburdened the telemedicine side is. Yeah, so I think, you know, making money in, in peace days is very different than what's going on right now. I think the, everybody's focus, including ours, is really just to, to support the, the rightful transition of healthcare over technology so that people will get less exposure. Um, we, we serve different clients differently. Uh, health plans are primarily dealing with the mass millions of membership that they have that are very worried about mm -hmm. what they need to do, what are the right symptoms, and so on and so forth. But then we also have a lot of health systems that regularly treat elder patients, elder Americans. And these, you know, these patients don't necessarily need care for coronavirus. They need care for their diabetes right. and heart failure. And if we can allow that care to happen over technology and prevent those patients from showing up in crowded waiting rooms where a lot of bad things can happen, we can save some lives. Well, Roy, let me ask you. Uh, before the cell phone, obviously, was, everything was very different, how we treated healthcare. If we always had the yeah. cell phone, will we ever really visit the doctor's office, which to me is the worst place in the world to be because you can catch a bunch of diseases when, you're, when you find out that you're actually healthier than you thought? Yeah, the, the, truth is, the truth is that there's a balance. I think we need to think about telehealth as another way in which healthcare can take place. There are some things about healthcare that can happen very effectively through technology, like dealing with, with simple medication, simple flu, uh, following up on patients who we already know what the diagnosis is, but they need a lot of hand-holding and everything else, helping patients after surgery to recover at home. There's a lot of stuff that can happen through telehealth, but clearly when it comes down to having an operation, a surgery, blood needs to be drawn, a CT scan right. needs to be done, um, or God forbid you need to be hospitalized, in those cases you actually do need to go into healthcare. But we can divide the load okay. on healthcare 
much differently in the world where we have this technology. We, we had Mark Casper on last night, who's the phenomenal CEO of Thermo uh, Fisher, and they're going to have 5 million, he says they're going to have 5 million testing kits next week. How is that going to change the way Amwell helps people who fear they have COVID-19? Yes, I think the, you know, the, the, the whole... The whole world of testing, you know, has been debated, discussed, you know, that, that's probably, you don't need me to talk about that. But the reality is that as more and more people are getting access to those tests, we're going to have a whole new kind of, of worries that people are going to have. Where do I get the test? Should I get the test now? Am I eligible for the test? Am I showing symptoms? Did I cross the line where I need to get the test? And realistically, just to be clear about it, people who are going to get the test, if, they, if there's a consideration that they were exposed for the most part, we're going to tell them, go home and stay quarantined. So now you have a huge population of Americans who are at the edge of their seat. They may have been exposed. They may have taken the test. And we're telling them to stay home. If we're not going to be able to allow them to get in front of healthcare professionals, many of them will actually have to break the quarantine and go to healthcare. So we need telehealth not only to deal with the worried well, we need to also envelope and be there for Americans who are going through the progression of the illness in their home in order to actually, you know, move the needle on this. Well, look, I, I, I wish you were public because we only have one right now. And what you're doing just sounds amazing. Uh, private company. I want to thank you so much, Roy Schoenberg, president and co-CEO of Amwell. I wish we could own it. It's private. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody's back after the break. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweet. Okay, so uh, I hope that is has educated you a little bit about telemedicine and whether this is a good thing for you. Maybe not. You know, maybe you have more problems that you need to see a face-to-face visit with, you know. But as far as the initial consultation, you know, if you have something minor, and also if you go to the doctors or wherever uh, for something more serious and they take tests, um, they can tell you the tests over telemedicine. Um, They can probably tell you how to deal with the problem. Uh, you wouldn't have to go to the doctor so that he can do or he or she can do that consultation. You could probably have that consultation over the phone. So, um, you know, I did sign up for the telemedicine uh, app that um, our insurance company now offers. And so we'll see uh, how that how that works out uh, in the future. All right. So on to coronavirus and traveling so a lot of people are confused about whether they're allowed to travel um you know can you go state to state um now i don't know about vacation or for leisure or to visit you know i guess that's probably something that you know you probably shouldn't do probably should just stay home but if you have to travel for your job i guess traveling is getting a lot cheaper um, but here's a audio clip from a video that was posted by the Wall Street Journal. It's called The Coronavirus Makes Travel Cheaper, But Should You Book? So let's take a listen. With headlines like these, you're probably where I am at home. 
For a travel columnist, being stuck inside is not ideal, but I'm learning that it does have its perks. The coffee is close, no need for headphones, and the travel deals are big. In August, you could fly New York to San Francisco for $255, and that's round trip. Los Angeles to Chicago, $104, and you get to come back. Washington, D.C. to New Orleans, $133. Before you get excited, now is not the time to be dumb and dangerous. You shouldn't travel during a pandemic just because fares are cheap, but the bargains extend beyond the forecast sheltering periods. So the question is, should you buy? Well, it depends on what you're booking. Let's start with flights. According to booking app Hopper, Domestic airfares for summer and fall trips were down 36% compared to the same period last year. Some, like this $41 Boston to Orlando round trip in June, were even better than that. And while it's hard to know what will be happening in June, the cheapness of domestic flights make them worth the gamble. Airlines are currently selling these tickets without cancellation or change fees, meaning if you do end up unable to travel, you'll get a voucher for a later trip. The trip may not work out for you if the crisis extends, but you won't have much money tied up in the ticket, and you can apply it to later trips. If you do get to go on that $41 fare, you win. The risk isn't worth it for international travel, at least not this year. Sure, seeing a $280 round trip from New York to Paris is tempting, but international travel restrictions may remain in place for some time, and even if they're lifted, Consider how far from home you want to be, as there could be yet more local outbreaks of the coronavirus. So wait on your international trips and be flexible when you do book. Airlines are dropping lots of routes, and those schedule changes may force you to travel earlier or later than expected. As for cruises, this one is simpler. You should wait. Coronavirus shut down the three big operators for at least 30 days, possibly longer. Even after they're back on the water, I expect there will be a long-term concern about cruise ships and the possible recurrence of viral outbreaks. Ultimately, it will depend on your personal comfort level. The news of the Diamond Princess and the Grand Princess dominated headlines and showed how a viral outbreak can spread in a confined space. If you're looking for a hotel, however, now might be the time to book, as long as it's refundable. Occupancy rates are way down. Marriott says it has lost 90% of its bookings, for example. That means hotels are dropping prices to fill rooms. Even luxury hotels, which try to avoid discounts, are offering fourth and fifth night free deals and waiving prepayment and cancellation penalties, according to travel sellers. No matter what, don't book anything with cancellation fees. We just don't know how long the coronavirus is going to keep us homebound. On that point, it's just fine to wait. Travel experts say when this is over, there will be huge sales to get people traveling again. Okay, so yeah, I didn't think about that, about um, trying to reserve stuff for the future. So that's interesting. Um, You know, I thought they were talking about traveling right now, but yeah, I mean, if you wanted, I guess, to reserve for the future, but again... It's so uncertain. We don't know, you know, how long it's going to last. And even if there's going to be like another outbreak, you know, I mean, 
be just so no. So that's uh, sound advice. Don't book anything that has a cancellation fee and et cetera, et cetera. So, all right, that'll take us out of the travel realm. And um, I have a few minutes here. So uh, I'll go on with safety advice. If you must visit the grocery store by Sumathi Reddy. And this was a Wall Street Journal uh, article. Um, With communities across the country virtually shut down, there is still one place nearly everyone needs to visit at some point. The grocery store. Experts say deliveries are safer, but sometimes it can be hard to get one scheduled right away. So if you must go to the store, what's the best way to navigate the aisles and crowds? We asked the experts. Is it safe to go to the grocery store? And I guess the answer is try to minimize visits to the store. The biggest risk factor is really being around other people, says Benjamin Chapman, a professor of food safety at North Carolina State University. That's because the novel coronavirus is spread largely through droplets from nearby people coughing or sneezing. If you must go, maintain a buffer around yourself and try to go at off hours. Now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends a six-foot buffer, while the World Health Organization says three feet will suffice. It's hard to maintain a distance from cashiers, so use self-checkout when possible and use hand sanitizer when you're done. Now, I do have a comment about the self-checkout. When the self-checkout keeps uh, breaking down, let's say, because, you know, you didn't input something right or, you know, maybe the machine's not working, the person has to come over and help you and scan your thing anyways. So, you know, the chances of you get, or me getting out of the self-checkout without something going wrong, (laughs) I don't know if it's just me or if everybody has this problem or if it's one particular store I have a problem. Um, you know, the person has to come over and scan his little badge or her little badge and everything. So to me, um, I don't know if it's a big difference for me to go through the self-checkout or to go through the cashiers, but the cashiers have put this, uh, plastic barrier up in some stores along the conveyor belt. So that might help a little bit, right? It, it's a pain to try to put your stuff on the conveyor, you know, because you got to reach around this plastic thing to put it on. But at the same time, it does limit the distance between the cashier and yourself. So hopefully that uh, works out. All right. All right. So that was just a little bit of safety advice. If you must visit the grocery store, I mean, that was just part of it. So Maybe if we have time uh, later down the road, we'll go through and uh, go through some other things on this list. All right. But in the meantime, we are running out of time. If you have any comments on anything that you've heard today on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. 
Also, if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on the show or any consumer topic discussed on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online. Tube City Community Media heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week.